Um, you know, have you guys ever heard the phrase, I would love to just be a fly on the wall in that room? You guys know that phrase? It, where does that come from? It comes from the desire to just eavesdrop on a conversation, whether it's of important people or whether it's just interesting people or whether it's just a conversation you would like to just eavesdrop in on. And I, you know, it explains a little bit that desire that we have to eavesdrop in on certain conversations. It explains the reason why podcasts are so popular today. You know, it, it boggles the mind, and it has completely defied all of what all the experts say about our attention spans in the modern day. People say that we can only handle 20-minute entertainment and 20-minute chunks, but then podcasts come on the scene, and whatever you think of him, and I have opinions of him, but I'm not going to let those known, but whatever you think of Joe Rogan, he gets, he's paid $50 million a year by Spotify to just have four-hour conversations, and millions of people are listening in on this. People want to be flies on the wall when interesting people have conversations. One of my favorite TV shows is Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Anybody watch this? Any Jerry Seinfeld fans in the room? Uh, I mean, what is that show? It is Jerry Seinfeld driving around in a car and getting coffee with other comics. It's not even an interview, it's just a conversation. And I will, watch, I will binge watch episodes of Jerry Seinfeld having conversations with other comics because it's, there's something entertaining about eavesdropping in on conversations of important people, of famous people, of wealthy people, of interesting people, or funny people. I mean, we tune in by the millions to watch interviews, like impressive interviews. I think of if you're uh, old enough, you remember Oprah interviewing Michael Jackson. You remember that? Most watched television interview of all time. I'm a big uh, cycling fan. Oprah interviewing Lance Armstrong when he finally came clean. That was interesting to watch. Barbara Walters, Monica Lewinsky. We love to eavesdrop in on conversations of important people. I have belabored the point. We are studying the Gospel of John, and we are looking this week at John 17, and in this chapter, we're not eavesdropping in on, import, on famous people talking to one another. We get to eavesdrop in on Jesus, the Son of God, talking to God the Father. What could be more interesting than that? What could be more interesting than hearing what Jesus talks about when Jesus talks to his Father? We get to listen in on Jesus praying to the Father. We see, we get to see and read what Jesus talks about when he talks to his heavenly Father. We get to see and read what Jesus asks for when Jesus asks his Father for something. And we get to see, get this, who Jesus prays for when Jesus prays. And this, what we're going to see in John 17 today in Jesus' prayer to his Father is we're going to see what Jesus cares most deeply about, and we're going to care. We're going to see who who Jesus cares most deeply about, and we're going to have a Jesus. The way he prays gives us a guide for how we should pray as well. And in Jesus's prayer, have you ever wondered how to pray? I mean, this is the question that the disciples asked Jesus. Like they've followed, they've heard all the sermons, and the question they still had was, Jesus, how do we pray? And I, I mean, I've been following Jesus for a long time, and. I, I still feel, I'm like, I feel like I am a kindergartner when it comes to prayer. Anybody else feel that way? You're like, I want to be better at prayer, but how do you do it? And Jesus gives us a guide today of how we pray. And he prays. In this prayer, we see almost like he prays in concentric circles. 
He prays for those that are closest to him and then goes outward. He begins by praying for himself. It's okay to pray for yourself. Jesus did it. He prays for his disciples, and then he prays for you and me. He goes outward and outward and outward. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 17. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, these are the words that he spoke to his disciples in the upper room in the la at the Last Supper. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. What does that mean? That means he's about to die. The hour has come means the hour has come for Jesus to be delivered over, to be crucified. He says, the hour has come, Father. Now glorify your son, meaning him. Now glorify me that I may glorify you, Jesus says. Since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He's talking about himself. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus begins his prayer by praying for himself. And what does Jesus pray for himself in the final moments of his life? You know, I've always thought that I've always hoped that I would be cognizant of what would be what will be the final moments of my life. You know, I hope I have I hope I have the that privilege of being to know of being able to know when my final moments are. And I, I would imagine in that moment, if you're of right mind, there's some clarity where you're thinking back on your life. And you, and, but Jesus knows he's about to die, and he has clarity in this moment. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. This is Jesus' most significant. This is, this is the, the thrust of his, his mission on earth. This is his prayer. Glorify me, Father, so that I may glorify you. And the first thing we have to understand as we hear this is this is a prayer that belongs uniquely to Jesus. God, glorify me. The not a prayer you should be praying. Uh, it, God, glory is God's alone. Not really a prayer that you and I should be praying, but Jesus prays it. He says, Father, glorify me. And that teaches us a little bit something about who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. How can Jesus pray, glorify me? Here's the reason. Jesus has existed from all eternity. He, the, John 1.1, 1, 1, when we began studying the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 5, Jesus says here, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. How can Jesus pray, glorify me? Well, because he has existed for all eternity. He is one with the Father. He is God. And yet Jesus, being, uh, uh, yet Jesus being equal with the Father, he has stripped himself of all the glories of heaven. He was born, of a man, born as a man, and in every step and in every moment of his life, Jesus completely fulfills the law of God as a man on this earth. He fulfilled the commands of God. He fulfilled the will of God. And now he's preparing to be obedient even to his very death. I think of Philippians chapter 2 where Jesus says, uh, or where Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, became a man, was obedient to the law, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me because I have come to earth to rescue and redeem your people. I have been obedient to your will all the way to the end, and I will be obedient to your will all the way to the end, even on a cross. 
Jesus did everything his father ever asked of him from the very beginnings of eternity, which is eternity, no beginning, until this very moment, Jesus has been obedient. He says in verse four, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So this is not a prayer that you and I can pray. This is a prayer that belongs uniquely to Jesus. Glorify me, Jesus says. But this is a prayer that we can thank God for answering because God answered Jesus's prayer and Jesus was glorified because the Father answered Jesus's prayer when Jesus was lifted up on the cross and through the cross, Jesus draws all of us to himself and we receive eternal life. So we, we can thank God for answering Jesus's prayer, but this is a prayer that belongs uniquely to Jesus. We're not praying, God glorify me. However, there is a principle here that can guide us as we pray. Jesus says, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And the principle for us is this. When we pray, we're not praying for God to give us glory, but we do often pray for God to bless us, right? And why do we pray that God will bless us? We ought to pray that God will bless us for his glory, you know, many of us, we pray, we say, God bless me, God give me this, God, you know, God protect me, God give me all these things, but for what? So that he can receive glory. Bless me, bless my obedience to your will, God, for your glory. That is an appropriate prayer for you and I to pray. I think of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, there's the story of a woman named Hannah. And Hannah she was barren, she didn't have any children, and she desperately wanted to be a mother. And she, you know, she, at this time and in this culture, having children was kind of the mark of what it meant to be a woman. And so she was bullied, she was barren, and other mothers sort of shamed her for not having children. And in her frustration, this is what Hannah prays, God, give me a son so that I can dedicate him for your glory. You see, her prayer is not, she was getting bullied and made fun of and uh, just sort of shamed by these other mothers. And she could have prayed, God, give me a son, give me a child so that I, I, don't, I don't feel shame anymore. God, give me a child so that I don't get bullied anymore. But no, she prays, God, give me a child so that I can dedicate him for your glory. Her prayer was not for herself or her own sense of honor. She prays, God, bless me so that I can bless you. In fact, she prays this prayer in the temple so passionately that the priest thought she was drunk. I, that's a funny little detail. Have you ever prayed so passionately that people are like, whoa, dude, chill out? That's a good prayer. When people are like, what is, that guy's weird. So what happened with her. But she brings, and then God answers her prayer. She has a son, and she names him Samuel, which means I asked, him, I asked for him from the Lord. And when God gives her her son, she doesn't forget about the prayer she prayed. Her prayer was, give me a son so that I can raise him to bless you. And she doesn't forget that when her prayer gets answered. How many times have we prayed, God, if you give me this, I'll bless you. Then we get it. And it's like, oh yeah, I forgot. Moving on. She doesn't forget the prayer she prayed. And she takes her son back to the house of the Lord and she dedicates him to God. And she says, I will be obedient and raise this child to know you and love you and honor you. Thank you, God, for blessing me. Now I will give you glory with the way I mother this child. That's a beautiful example of prayer. You know, we spend so much of our time in prayer wondering and asking if God is for us. God, where are you? God, are you for me? 
Are you on my side? God, uh, where, why do I, where are you, God? But we already know that God is on our side. We already know that he is with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us. And what if our prayers were less about God, where are you? And us coming to God, reaffirming, God, I know you are for me, even though I may not feel it. I know that you are for me, but I'm affirming now that I want my life to be for you. So bless me, God. Bless my obedience to you for your glory. God, I want these things that you have called me to, to, to have for your glory. You know, I think about the Easter extravaganza that's coming up for our church. You remember years ago, some of our OGs that were around the, all those years ago, we, the first year we had the Easter extravaganza, we had a prayer gathering the night before the Easter extravaganza. And I, we, were, we were a much, much smaller church at that time. And we prayed. We thought it was a big, bold prayer. We said, God, it would be amazing if 50, 50, 5, 0 of our neighbors showed up to the extravaganza. Because we, we just want, it wasn't even extravaganza, it was just an Easter egg hunt. And we were like, we just want to, we want our neighbors to know that we're in the neighborhood. We want our neighbors to know that we love them. We want our neighbors to hear the message of Jesus raising from the dead on Easter. We want these things. So God, in our bold faith, would you, would you give us 50 of our neighbors to come to the extravaganza? And we thought, we had a prayer meeting. We, we thought we were praying for some big, bold thing. The next day, I think like a thousand people showed up. And many of you are here because of that prayer. And we're praying now as we're about a month out from the Easter extravaganza, maybe even less than that. We're, about, we're a few weeks out from the extravaganza and we're praying, God, would you bless plastic Easter eggs? Why? Not so that Crossroads can put on a good event. Not so that we can just gather 1,500 people or whatever in our neighborhood. God, would you bless our plastic Easter eggs and would you bless our temporary tattoos and would you bless our games and would you bless our face painting? Why? For your glory. Would you bless the hard work that we put in? Would you bless the volunteer hours that we're putting into this thing? Would you bless these things so that people will know that this church exists in this neighborhood and so that they can know that the people of God love them, care for them, and so that maybe, just maybe, they could be brought into our church or brought in contact with our people so that they can hear the message that there is an empty tomb and that God has risen his son from the grave and that because God has raised Jesus from the dead, their life can be resurrected as well. So we pray, God, bless our extravaganza for your glory. And this is what we pray in all of our, this is what you should pray in your life. God, bless my obedience to you so that my life can give you glory. John 17, 6, as we continue on in this prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples. He moves on, he prays for himself, and now he prays for his friends the ones who just had dinner with him. He says in verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He's talking about his disciples. And he says, listen to this prayer. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I am sending my disciples into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus prays for himself, the closest thing to him. Then he prays for his friends. 
And I think there's a lesson for us. Like, we, we, it's okay to pray for yourself, and it's okay to pray for the world. You know, it's okay to pray for Ukraine. That's a good thing. But do you have a group of friends that you're praying regularly for? Jesus did. Are you praying for your small group? Are you praying for your friends, your family, your children? So we should be praying for people in these circles close to us. But Jesus prays two things for his disciples. He prays that they would be protected from the evil one, Satan, the devil, the enemy, the father of lies, the accuser, and that they would be holy. This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Protect them from the evil one and keep them holy. So he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I find this prayer fascinating. Jesus has spent the last several hours telling his disciples over dinner that they will face persecution. He said, the world is going to be a hostile place for you. When you preach my name, you will face persecution. There will be powers that oppose you. The world will be against you and you will face persecution. What a horrible possibility for these disciples. And their temptation was probably to avoid persecution. Like, okay, we'll just hang out. We'll start a church right here in Jerusalem, but we'll just kind of lay low. We won't shake, the, we, won't, we won't rock the boat. We'll just have our own little uh, holy community and we'll be fine and we won't, we won't upset anybody. We'll isolate ourselves from the world and have a good time together. But Jesus says, no, that's not what I want for you. I want you to go out into the world where you will be persecuted. And his prayer is not that they would be taken isolated from the world, but his prayer is that as they go into the world, they would be protected, not from the people, because the people are not our enemies. The world is not the enemy of the people of God. The evil one is. He says, send them into the world, but protect them from the evil one. And you know, there's this warped view that many religious communities have. And that is that we believe that our enemy is the world around us. So what we often do is we try to protect ourselves, we try to isolate ourselves, we try to protect our kids and isolate our kids from the world around us. And we say, God, protect us from the big bad world. But Jesus says here, and the New Testament writers affirm that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus doesn't pray, protect my disciples from the world. He says, I'm putting them in the world, but protect them from the evil one. And then he prays another prayer for his disciples. He says, sanctify them. Sanctify them in your truth. That word sanctify, that's kind of a churchy word. If you didn't grow up in church, you're like, what in the world does that mean? Nobody uses that word. It sounds like a metal band or something. Like, what does sanctify mean? It simply means make them holy. Make them set apart. Make them different. Make them weird. Make them righteous. Make them more like me is what he's saying. Think about this. The disciples are the very ones whom Jesus is going to entrust to take his message, the message of his resurrection into the world. So these, all these men and these women are soon to be uh, pastors and missionaries. And Jesus doesn't pray anything about their skill. He didn't pray, make these guys the best communicators, the best entrepreneurs. If they're gonna need to plant churches all over the world, they gotta have a good business mind, good marketing acumen. They need to have a good brand. What's your brand strategy to sign? Jesus isn't praying for any of that stuff. He prays, he doesn't pray about their skill. He prays, protect them from the evil one and make them holy. And he prays that they would go into the world with boldness and confidence. And God answered this prayer. 
Every one of those disciples went into the world. They preached the message of Jesus' resurrection. Most of them were persecuted and killed for it. Yet every one of them, to our knowledge, remained faithful to the end. And there were no scandals with Peter. I mean, yeah, there were, uh, Peter had trouble. He, he, he stripped. But Peter never cheating on his wife, never stealing money from the church. There's no, none of these scandals like we see. Thomas, faithful to the end. He doubted a little bit, but he was faithful to the end. They honored Jesus with their lives. And while this prayer was prayed specifically for his disciples, and this was a prayer that Jesus prayed specifically for them, I think Jesus' prayer indirectly teaches us a few things about how we can pray, specifically how we can pray for our spiritual leaders. Um, uh, Jesus' prayer teaches us that there are really two ways to pray for pastors, for spiritual leaders, and it's this. There are really two ways, if you really want to categorize it, there's really two ways that pastors go down in our modern world. Discouragement and scandal. Discouragement from the evil one and scandal from pastors doing things and being people that they shouldn't be. And if I can just be self-seeking for a moment and ask you to pray for me, (laughs) pray for your pastors. Um, Pray that God would protect us from discouragement. Protect us from the evil one. You know, the scriptures, uh, the devil is called the father of lies and the accuser. And I think about that father of lies a lot. Did you know that in the last two years during COVID, statistics say that over 40% of pastors have considered leaving the ministry. 40%. That's a massive number. Have considered leaving the ministry. Why? Because none of us were trained in seminary on how to lead a church through a pandemic. Like it, like, and it has been, I mean, we went nine months without seeing anybody like that's discouraging for a pastor. And so for the last two years, 40% of pastors have considered leaving ministry. And the reason I think is because you have, none of us know how to lead in a pandemic. We're all figuring out on our own. And then we're like, we're making all, we're fumbling and figuring it out. And then in our ear is Satan himself saying, you don't know what you're doing. What makes you think you can lead the people of God through this and that God, you are you are terrible. You know, <laughs> those are the lies that, that we get from the enemy. And we need protection from this discouragement. I know you guys know Lorraine. She always tells me she's praying for me. She says, well, I'm praying. She says, I know that ministry is tough. I know that there is, an, you, there is an enemy that wants to derail you. And she says, I pray for you that you won't get discouraged. And Lorraine, if you're watching online, I want you to know how much I appreciate those prayers. Would you pray for us that we would be protected from discouragement from the evil one, but also pray that we would be holy. There is, I get so heartbroken, heartbroken's a a nice word, I get so angry and frustrated and beat down every time I see another pastor buried in scandal. I know that annoys you guys, but it gets me too. Adultery, abuse, moral failings, financial misdealings, None of those, those things damage the mission of Jesus so much in the world. And it makes me so sad to see when my peers, when my friends do things that they're not, they shouldn't do because they stopped pursuing holiness. And would you pray that I would be holy and that Kyle would be holy and that your ministry leaders would be holy? I, I, I spoke with before I came to Crossroads, I was an associate pastor, and I worked for a guy named Derek Staples, Pastor Derek Staples. He, I still kind of consider him my pastor. 
Uh, but I talked to him like two weeks ago, and he's preparing for retirement. He's like three years away from retirement. And he was, and I, I was, I, I had a moment to just encourage him. I was like, Derek, he was asking, he was, he was, we're talking about all sorts of things. And I said, Derek, I just want to affirm you as you're preparing for retirement and transitioning out of your role. I was like, you're going to finish the race, man. Like you've been faithful to your wife this whole time. You've been, you've loved your kids well. You've shown compassion to the church that God has given you. You've been honest with your finances. You have honored Jesus with your life. And now you're coming to the end of your ministry and everyone around you and the father himself can say, well done, good and faithful servant. My, my pastor, Derek, he's never brought scandal into the Jesus's church. He has honored Jesus with his life. He's not a perfect man, but he's a holy man. And my, prayer, my, my request for you, this is my prayer request, that if you pray for me at all, and I hope you do, pray this for me. Pray that in 30 years at my retirement party, people will say the same thing about me. I just want, I want, I just want to finish the race, you know? But these prayers, they don't just apply to spiritual leaders. They apply to you as well. Pray these for yourself. Pray these for your friends. Protect us from the evil one and make us holy. Jesus continues. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And then he prays for you and me. He prays for you and me. Listen to this. He says, I do not ask for my disciples only. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the third thing Jesus prays for is he prays for you and me. The final group he prays for is you and me. He says, I do not ask for, uh, he says, I do not ask for my disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's us. <laughs> we have believed in Jesus through the word and the ministry of the apostles. Passed down for generation and generation and generation. Have you, I mean, I want you to just consider this for a moment. 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, in the upper room where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and had the last supper with his disciples, in that very room, hours before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for you and me. Jesus prayed for you. He, we were on his mind. He thought of you. He thought of me. He thought of all his followers in all places and at all times in the future. When Jesus was praying the night before he was crucified, he thought of Crossroads in Brooklyn, New York at 3 p.m. on March 13th, 2022. And what did he pray for us? He prayed that we would be unified. Jesus spends his final hours praying for the unity of the church. And he prays that the world would see him through us. He says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And how is it that Jesus intends to make himself known to the world through us, through our unity? Have you guys ever heard of the gold saddle goatfish? Anybody ever heard of that? No Shark Week, National Geographic kind of people? Well, in Hawaii, divers have reported seeing this massive colorful fish, unlike anything they've ever seen, swim toward them in the ocean. 
But then when this big, huge fish gets, it looks like a fish, shaped like a fish, swims, moves like a fish. But then when it gets close to them, they realize that it isn't one fish, but it's thousands of fish that form together in the shape of a larger fish, tightly together, they move together, they work together, they shape together to look like a larger fish. They do this to scare predators, but for our sake, this is a beautiful picture of what the church is. We are a group of individuals that gather together, we, we, we form together to look like Jesus, we move in the world together to look like Jesus so that the world can see the shape of Jesus, what he looks like, what he's like. So the way we live our lives together shows the world what Jesus is like. And how do we do that? Jesus already told his disciples just a few hours earlier, he said, all the people, all the, he said, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says that the church shows the world what he is like by the way that we love one another. You know, one of our values as a church is that we are, uh, we're, we grow together as a family. That's not, we don't just grow together as a family just because that's a nice thing to do. We do that because it is how we experience the love of Christ in each other's lives, but it's also how we show the world what Jesus is like by being one. And this is why Jesus prays in verse 22. I pray that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus says, me and the Father are one. I pray that the people of God would be one. In his final hours, Jesus prays for us, the church of the future. And he prays, not that we would preach amazing sermons, not that um, we would have amazing worship services, not that we would publish books or podcasts or all sorts of other things. He prays that we would be unified, that we would be unified. And we live at a time in American history when the one word that best describes the current climate of our nation is this, polarized. <laughs> Books have been written about it. I mean, this is, I mean, in, we are divided as a nation in every conceivable category. I remember when COVID hit two years ago, I had this moment of hope where I was like, this is great. We, this is such a divided nation. COVID, it, we're all going to come together. This is going to unify us. And we, <laughs> did that happen? N not at all. It caused the polarization to just go into hyperdrive. See, our nation is at a point where not only are we, do we disagree with people, but we're suspicious of people who disagree with us. We've made our neighbors our enemies. We've dug our heels into the ground. We've chosen our sides. We've planted our flags, and we're just shouting across the trenches. And here's the thing. Nobody enjoys the polarization. Uh, none, of, none of us like it. I talked to people are like, I hate how divided our country is. We all hate it. Nobody enjoys arguing with their uncle about politics at Thanksgiving, right? We all hate it, but we don't seem to know how to stop it. And in this world of fragmentation, the church has an opportunity to show our neighbors that unity is possible through Jesus. And I'll be honest, I think Crossroads, I think we do this pretty well. Like in this room, this is a pretty diverse room. We've got people with different backgrounds. We've got people who speak different languages. We have people with different political convictions. We have people with different, um, all sorts of different things. And for the most part, we do this really well as a church. However, unfortunately, 
I don't think the American church has done this very well as a whole. Um, and this damages our ability to show the good news of Jesus to the world. When the world looks in on the church, what they see right now is us fighting just like everybody else. One writer says that disunity in the church breeds atheism in the world. And the opposite, I believe, is true, is that unity in the church builds belief in the world. Our world is starving for an example of how diverse people can be unified around something. This is why Jesus prayed that we would be one, because if we can show the world that he can unite a group of diverse people into one community around one mission and one goal, then the world can see that there is something, there is an antidote to the polarization in the world, and it's Jesus. You know, in Jesus' group of disciples, he had Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. I don't have time to go into the politics of first century Palestine, but these were, this wasn't Trump supporter versus Bernie supporter. This was way deeper than that. These were guys who had categorical differences on what it meant for the Jewish people to thrive under Roman oppression. These guys had completely different views of the world, but, these, but they had unity in Jesus. And that was able to trump their political disunity. And we can have this as well. And here's the thing. Historically, unity in the church comes in two ways. And one of two ways. One is through persecution. If you look at Christians in North Korea or Yemen or Somalia or Afghanistan or Nigeria today, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Catholics, the Orthodox, the Baptists in those countries are not preoccupied with infighting. You know that? about which Bible translation should you use. They're not. They're not arguing over music styles. Those Christians, they have their theological differences, but they have a common allegiance to Jesus that trumps all those differences, and they're unified in him because they have no other choice because they're being persecuted all around them. That's one way that unity can come into the church. And I certainly don't want this to be the avenue that is necessary to bring the American church together. Do you? I don't. Fortunately, there is another pathway to unity. And it's this, repentance and humility. Most of us think that unity, the only way unity can happen is if the other people come around to seeing things our way. You know? Unity is going to come when I beat them into submission. No, unity comes through repentance and humility. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, meaning if there's anything we can learn from Jesus, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. If there's anything we can do to learn from Jesus, it is that we would be unified complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this is how we do that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. How do we have unity? Humility. It starts with you and it starts with me. It doesn't start with, every, with someone else. It starts with you. So if, we want unity, if I want unity in the church, I don't demand it from you. I cultivate humility in myself. That's where unity comes from. That we, this is what Jesus prays for us, that we would lay aside selfish ambition, conceit, that we would lay aside having to always be right or having to always be noticed, and that we would count others as more significant than ourselves. That's the way of Jesus. The Apostle Paul continues. He says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess together that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. How does Jesus purchase unity for his people? Humility. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could all be covered by his love and by his blood, and so that as one we can all say together, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that we could be unified in the midst of all sorts of disunity. You see, in this passage, we got to eavesdrop in on a conversation between Jesus and the Father. And we, what we find in this conversation is that Jesus is most committed to the glory of his Father, he's committed to the perseverance of his disciples, and he's committed to the unity of his church. And he continued praying this prayer all the way to the cross. And the Father answered Jesus' prayer when he raised him from the dead, glorified him, strengthened him, and strengthened his disciples. And now here we are. We have the resurrection power of Christ in us, available to us. Will we use this power for our own selfish ambition, our own selfish interest, or will we use the resurrection power of the Spirit to honor one another in Jesus' name for his glory? Jesus prayed that we would do the latter. Let me pray for us, church. God, would you bless your church? Would you bless our church for your glory? God, would you protect us from the evil one? Would you make us holy and sanctify us by your spirit? And would you unify us together that we may be one as you are one? And God, would, would you let us show the world that we are your disciples by the way that we love one another. This is your prayer for us, and I pray that you answer it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.